0: Is it, it cold in your cell too yeah. like this? Yeah, and they won't give us jackets. They don't? <laughs> no, so we wrap up.
1: The voice you're hearing is a journalist named Janet Malcolm. She's in a federal prison in California, interviewing a man named Jeffrey McDonald. That seems unnecessary,
0: doesn't it? In 1987, I mean, this is ridiculous, you know, really.
1: Jeff used to be a doctor, a captain in the Green Berets. Now he's inmate 131177. Janet's here to talk about a fellow journalist named Joe McGinnis, an old friend of Jeff's.
0: said when you first met him... I like Joe. We talked about the same things, the New York Knicks, the Yankees and the Mets, uh, football...
1: Years before, Jeff had asked Joe McGinnis to write a book about him, and in the process, they became close.
0: And at the time, it seemed to me it was unmistakable that we were best friends.
1: Janet Malcolm also visited Joe McGinnis on his front porch in Williamstown, Massachusetts.
0: That's part of
2: your
3: This little house, house back you? here is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Carriage house.
1: She wanted to talk about the relationship between journalists and their subjects and specifically about how Joe had befriended Jeff. It was my purpose to spend as much waking time with him as I
3: possibly could. The more time you spend with a subject, the
1: more used to you they get, you become like a friend. That friendship didn't last.
0: If someone said to me, what is one word that describes Joe McGinnis? I'd say a liar. He is a consummate liar.
4: Reporter Joe McGinnis spent three years investigating Jeff McDonald, who granted him total access so that McGinnis might write the definitive book about him. It is called Fatal Vision. He has all of these friends who would say this is a gentle, caring,
3: giving man. That's all true. I'm not in any way attempting to deny that he's any of those things. All I'm saying is that there's no question that this gentle, caring, giving man also beat and stabbed to death his pregnant wife and his two young daughters.
1: In Fatal Vision, Joe said that Jeff was a psychopath.
3: Thumbnail sketch of Jeffrey McDonald.
0: Absolutely ruthless and beyond morality.
1: And Jeff said Joe's book
0: was filled with lies. I never physically assaulted anyone in my life, and certainly not my wife and my two children.
1: An epic feud began between a journalist who wrote a true crime bestseller
0: and a subject who felt betrayed. When you learned of this betrayal, I was devastated. He was going to my mother and saying, don't worry, when the book comes out, this will all be righted. What he did was awful.
1: This feud drew the attention of Janet Malcolm. Her interviews with Joe and Jeff became a book called The Journalist and the Murderer, and her conclusions were scathing.
5: Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible.
1: She portrayed Joe McGinnis as a backstabber.
5: He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse.
1: That portrayal would follow Joe to his grave.
5: Joe McGinnis died this week, leaving behind a dual legacy. as both journalistic, hero, and villain.
1: My name is Mark Smerling. Two years ago, I started making a TV doc series about the McDonald murders, and I wanted to interview Janet Malcolm. We talked on the phone, but she wouldn't go on camera. But I'd read about these tapes she'd made, so I asked her if I could hear them. Where did my relationship with McDonald go beyond that of author and subject? She told me she burned these tapes.
0: But look, Do you have any doubt about this yourself? I mean, are you completely convinced in your own mind that you wouldn't change it in
3: any way? I can't think of any way that I would change this. You know.
1: Listening to these tapes now, I'm left with so many questions. Were Janet's conclusions about Joe McGinnis fair? Did Joe expose a vicious murderer, or did he betray an innocent man? And one question stands above them all. Is what Joe McGinnis did morally indefensible?
6: There are things you'll never forget. I have put it in the back of my mind, but it's something that I would never wish on anybody. My name is Richard Tavere. I was a military policeman stationed at Fort Bragg the night of February 17th, 1970. I was the first MP to enter the McDonald home. It was an ugly night. Cold. There was a torrential downpour. It was, it was raining very heavily, it had been raining all evening. And we were in a Jeep that did not have a great heater. Around the back of one of the shopping center areas, there was a tremendous heater and it would throw off exhaust. It was very warm. So we would sit behind the heater with our doors open and just relax. That's when we got the call. We were asked to go to Castle Drive. They believed there was domestic disturbance at that location.
7: My name is Ken Micah. I was an MP at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. One of the first MPs at 544 Castle Drive. It's about 3.40 in the morning. So we get to the call and everybody was banging on the front
6: door. There was no answer. Trevier was already there. I went around the back of the house. The screen door was closed, but the inside door was ajar, you know? And I took one step into the, what was I guess the bedroom. There was blood on the wall. There was blood on the ceiling, you know, drops of blood. I shined a light. I saw Colette McDonald lying on the ground, covered with blood. And uh, a male laying next to her, who I didn't know at the time, was Jeffrey McDonald. I saw them, was startled, and I ran back out of the house. I started to go around the side of the house, and I met Trivia, and he's yelling to get it ambulance ASAP. When we went back around the house, I pulled out my weapon. I put a round in the chamber, not knowing if there was somebody still in the house.
7: At first, I thought it was a homicide suicide. Then Jeff McDonald started to move.
6: I went down the hall, and I looked into the first uh, smaller bedroom where one of his daughters was, and I could see that she was lifeless, she wasn't moving, and there was a lot of blood. Then I went into the second bedroom and I saw her again, a young, very young girl, lifeless, and it was blood dripping down the side of the bed and there was a puddle of blood on the floor. I came back to where Jeff McDonald was. He had been stabbed and Ken Micah was kneeling over him. I was trying to keep him calm until we could get medical. Jeff started saying that, hippies came into the house and were stating acid is groovy killed the pigs on the headboard sideways someone had dipped their finger in blood and written pig i said you know who did this and he starts describing says a black black man
0: and a woman with a floppy
7: hat i had just seen a woman standing on the corner two blocks away
8: Civilian authorities have joined military police in a community-wide search for young people described as hippies, including a woman who is described as having long blonde hair wearing cowboy boots. My name is Jeff Thompson, and I was news director of WFNC Radio. On the morning of February 17th, I immediately found my way to Castle Drive. A woman and two children were found dead. Was a big story. On the Army post of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, some bizarre murders took place last night, reminiscent of the Sharon Tate case. It came six months after the Tate LaBianca murders in California. The Manson murders. In a scene reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband. A similar situation a pregnant woman killed by a gang of hippies. Horrendous murders, you know, stabbings and blood everywhere. The word pig had been scrawled in blood on the door of the Bel Air Mansion, where actress Sharon Tate and... You know, international news, as did McDonald. McDonald told military police the murderers were three men and a woman who invaded his family quarters, shouting, acid is great, kill the pigs. We kept it alive on the radio for 26 consecutive days. Authorities say no suspects have been identified in the murders of Jeffrey McDonald's family but they continue to search for a band of hippies. McDonald obviously had obviously been taken to the hospital and he was a very prominent doctor, Green Beret. Couldn't imagine that he could have done it. But we were all sort of amazed that he was the only one that would have survived. Why was he still alive and that family murdered the way it was? That didn't make sense. It all seemed to fall on Captain McDonald.
0: Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all
1: time.
3: Suddenly out of the darkness appeared bin Laden.
1: You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position?
6: Vengeance felt good seeing these people paid for what they'd done felt righteous.
1: True Spies, from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. A few months after the murders of his pregnant wife and two young daughters on Fort Bragg, the Army charged Captain McDonald with the crime.
7: I was coming into the barracks. Truvia yells out the window, they're locking McDonald up. I go, really?
1: Ken Micah was one of the first MPs to enter the house the night of the murders. So the Army's lead prosecutor wanted to talk to him.
7: You sat sort of in the middle of the room and they just asked you questions. Background information and what you were doing that night.
1: And that's when Micah told the prosecutor something he
7: didn't want to hear. I bring the girl up and they're like, what girl? I said the girl I saw when I was responding. The girl who was standing on the corner. On his way to the crime scene,
1: Mike had seen a woman standing off the side of the road wearing a floppy hat. She matched the description Jeffrey McDonald had given of one of his attackers.
7: He goes, I don't know anything about a girl. Just keep it quiet because I can't explain it and I don't know what you're talking about.
1: During an investigative hearing to examine the evidence against Jeffrey McDonald, Micah testified for the prosecution. He didn't mention the girl. But afterwards, it bothered him.
7: At least a half a dozen people know that I saw this woman. Somebody is going to say something. It's going to be brought out whether she did it, she didn't do it, it's just not right, they should know about it. That's when Micah decided to testify for the defense. As we approach the intersection, I see a woman standing on the corner. What did that woman look like? Ringcoat, boots, and uh, rain hat. So that didn't make the prosecution too happy because it made them look like they were trying to suppress evidence.
8: The Army today cleared Captain Jeffrey McDonald, a Green Beret physician, of charges that he murdered his wife and two young daughters nine months ago in their Fort Bragg, North Carolina apartment.
1: Jeff was set free.
2: Oh, dear, Jeffrey McDonald. I've thought about it a hundred times since it happened.
1: This is Dick Cavett. In the 70s, he was the king of late-night TV. If you wanted to grab national attention, the Dick Cavett Show was your best shot. By the end of 1970, investigators had given up on looking for the hippie killers, and Jeff went on the Cavett Show to push the government to reopen the case.
8: The Dick Cavett Show!
2: I remember standing face to face with him as I came down from upstairs to the dressing room to go on in really the next 40 seconds. So we said hello. A lady on my staff who had spent the day with him was facing me, and over his shoulder, I saw, I think he
3: did it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cabot.
2: By the time I had done the monologue, I had kind of forgotten to worry about this segment, and then brought him out.
4: It's a baffling story. The more you begin to look into it and read about it, uh, incredible bungling on the Army's part, it seems quite likely in this case. It's just a, a nightmare, but this man lived through it. Dr. Jeffrey McDonald,
2: When he came out, he didn't seem like a grisly murderer. He's um, movie star good-looking. I kept thinking that this poor guy
4: I call you Dr. McDonald now, don't I? That's right, I'm ex-captain. Yeah, I'm doctor. yeah. Uh, I hope this isn't too painful for you. Uh, could you talk about what happened on that night last February?
0: Well, um, I can skim through it briefly uh, to get deep yeah. into it. Uh, yeah. It does produce a lot of uh, emotion on my part. My wife came home and we had a uh, before bedtime drink, really, and uh, watched the beginning of a late night talk show. My wife went to bed, she was uh, about four and a half months pregnant and I went to sleep on the couch. I was awakened by my wife screaming and, uh, as I sat up, there were some people in the room with me and they immediately uh, attacked me and I became unconscious. When I awoke, uh, the house was quiet and the back door was open and, uh,
2: This guy saw his wife and his two little children hacked and stabbed to pieces. My impression at the time was he's doing an awfully manful job about being able to not weep and have to be taken off the stage at the memory of all of this.
0: It still at times seems like a dream. A nightmare is a very mild term really for, for that night.
2: During a commercial break, I would look at him and think, this poor guy, God, he really has been through holy hell. And then we would come back and he was uh, briskly talking again.
0: There were people in the Army who wanted a court-martial, regardless of any evidence. Could that just be because they have to find somebody? Yes, that was a large part of it, I think. They realized that they had to do something. Yeah. Where are these investigators now who did the uh, original... Well, most of them have been transferred. It's it's the Army way of handling things. If someone really fouls up, you either give them a medal or you transfer them. Uh-huh. And, uh,
2: he seemed a bit um, inappropriate in his manner. I watched him smile, almost giggle a couple of times. Uh, this must have cost you a fortune. Right,
0: well, aside from my family and whatnot, yeah. somewhere ex- in excess of uh, $30,000.
2: There he is now, sort of checking out the chicks in the front row. I I must be wrong.
0: Do people look at you and say, how do we know he didn't do it? Well, yes. I don't think I'm being paranoid when I say that there is certainly a flavor of suspicion in a lot of people's minds. I started to think,
2: gosh, it's possible that he is guilty and it's possible that he's not. And I wonder which one it is. I'd like to know what you want to come out of this and what's going to happen next, because it's far
4: from closed. Congress has to uh, at least inquire into things. Not to mention the fact that the uh, perpetrators of the crime are still free. Absolutely.
0: There are at least four people running around who have uh, murdered three people.
2: What a strange, strange enigma Jeffrey is.
4: It'll be fascinating to see what happens. Well, good luck to you. After this brief message we'll be right back.
1: After that, the name Jeffrey McDonald was everywhere. And Jeff didn't shy away from the spotlight.
0: The price that I paid and the price that my family has paid is too great. The army doesn't want to look into its own state of affairs.
1: Around the same time, a little further down the dial, Nixon's the Another young man was getting his first taste of fame. At just 26, Joe McGinnis became the youngest living writer to make the New York Times bestsellers list.
2: Now will you welcome the author of a new book that's causing a great deal of a stir at the moment called The Selling of the President, 1968. Will you welcome Mr. Joe McGinnis?
1: Here's Joe on The David Frost Show. The book
2: has caused a a great deal of comment, Joe. The thing that must still stagger you is how you came
3: to have all the access you did. Well, it was kind of a stroke of, of good luck.
1: Joe had befriended the people running Richard Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign. And by doing that, he got an inside look at how Nixon won the presidency. He kept his head down and his ears and eyes open. I have received a very gracious message for winning the election. The selling of the president in 1968 was published shortly after Nixon was elected. It showed how Madison Avenue ad men, hired by Nixon's campaign, turned Nixon into a product. According to Joe, they sold Nixon to the American public like a pack of cigarettes. We never got a chance to vote for or against the man, but only for the image. Joe's first book embarrassed the new president.
3: Mr. Nixon said he might have to go to the FBI to find out how I got my access. (laughs)
1: And conservative talk show host William F. Buckley had a problem with how Joe got his story.
4: It is the fruit of a great deception. That is to say, one cannot suppose that competent people would have confided to Mr. McGuinness if they had known that he intended to write such a book as he has written.
1: Joe never told Nixon's advisors that his book would cast them in a negative light. So when it came out, they felt betrayed. Readers loved it, though. The Selling of the President became a smash hit. Doors began opening for Joe. Money was coming in. And TV appearances like this were making Joe a celebrity. There was excitement, and travel, and parties.
5: Joe and I met in January of 1970.
1: This is Nancy Doherty, Joe's widow.
5: I met him in the Warwick Hotel. I was working for Simon & Schuster, which published The Selling of the President, Joe's book and uh, our eyes met across a crowded room and it was just one of those things. (laughs) He was incredibly tall and young and handsome and it was just one of those magical moments. We both felt an instant attraction to each other.
1: On their first date, Joe took Nancy to a writer's hangout in Greenwich Village.
5: He was kind of a star at that point. People would actually recognize him, which was amazing for a writer. So that was kind of fun. One of the things we had in common was a great sense of humor. We laughed all the time. We just had a delightful time together. He was just sort of the perfect storm for me. We fell in
1: love. Many years later, Joe McGuinness would tell Janet Malcolm about the night he met Nancy. February 16th, 1970.
3: The first night that Nancy and I ever spent together was the night of the murders. Some bizarre murders took place
8: last night, which the base... I remember
3: seeing the headlines, you know, an army officer's
8: wife and family and... The wife and two young daughters of Captain Jeffrey McDonald were stabbed to death.
3: LSD, you know, hippies.
8: Acid is great, kill the pigs.
3: And paid no more attention to it, had no idea what had ever happened. I forgot completely about Jeffrey McDonald.
1: Nine years would pass before Joe would hear Jeffrey McDonald's name again. By 1979, Joe McGinnis had moved to Los Angeles with his new wife, Nancy, and a new child. He had written three books since the selling of the president. None had been as successful as his first. So to help make ends meet, he'd taken a job as a columnist.
5: This gig in LA was just for three months, and Joe was dying to find the next book.
1: One morning around the breakfast table, Joe was reading the newspaper, and he came across a name he recognized from the past.
5: This guy named Jeff McDonald, a doctor who was going back to North Carolina to stand trial for the murders of his wife and two daughters.:
1: The military had dropped the charges against Jeffrey McDonald back in 1970, but they continued to suspect McDonald had committed the murders. Now, almost nine years later, McDonald was about to face trial in a civilian court. And he thought,
5: "Oh my God, this is a great story.":
3: I'd never heard of a case where almost 10 years had passed, and the guy had established his whole life and everything, and now) After all this time, he's going to have to go back and stand trial. Definitely worth talking to this guy.
1: The next day, Joe drives to Jeff's $350,000 Oceanside condo. He notices a Citroën Maserati parked out front. License plate, JRM MD. Jeff answers the door sporting a gold chain and rings, handsome and fit, with graying blonde hair and a deep tan. After some small talk, Jeff and Joe jump in the Maserati to drive to a restaurant. Everyone seems to know Jeff. The waitresses are at his beck and call. Jeff orders brunch for the two of them and wine. He starts talking about the case, about the struggle he's going through, knowing he has to go back and relive what happened to his family. Joe listens, and he's sympathetic, but...
3: structure is being something a little bit icy mm-hmm. about him. I said to myself, you know, for 10 years, every time anybody meets this guy, you know, he knows that the first question they're asking themselves is, did he kill his wife and kids, or didn't he? Yeah. And you know, that could make you act uh, icy, you know, give you some kind of reserve.
1: But Jeff, he took to Joe immediately.
0: I liked his East Coast manner, as opposed to a California laid-back style. Uh, more cynical, more humor, sort of a biting humor, but uh, he seemed perceptive about a lot of things. We had a common interest in running, so we went running on the beach, crossed the highway, and we ran five miles down the beach together. Came back and had a couple of beers, you know? It was a very pleasurable type thing.
1: Back in the condo, Jeff popped the question.
3: He asked me if I would be interested in writing a book. Because so the the trial's about to begin, and for years we've been looking for somebody to write a book who would tell the truth, who would tell the whole story,
1: Joe says he'll think it over. As he's leaving, Jeff gives him a file box of case materials to look through.
3: And I I drove back up the freeway thinking, uh, interesting guy. You know, I had no idea whether he was innocent, guilty. I didn't know any facts.
5: When Joe came back from having breakfast with Jeff, he was pretty excited. He was very charmed by Jeff. He described how handsome he was, and he thought it was an amazing story that Jeff had to tell about what he'd been through, and he was very, very intrigued. There was a gleam in his eye, and I always knew that a gleam in Joe's eye was a good sign that something big was gonna happen.
1: That night, Joe goes through the file box Jeff gave him, and he finds newspaper clippings from 1970.
0: Wife and children found slain at Fort Bragg. Massive search launched for killers. No motive found in the slaying of army family. MP reports seen girl near McDonald residence. Congressman says report
3: completely clears doctor.
1: And he finds a report from that military hearing, written by the officer in charge. The officer recommends the case against Jeffrey McDonald
0: be dropped. Because the matters set forth are not true.
5: Joe basically bought the story that Jeff told him.
1: Joe called Jeff. He would do the book, but he had terms.
3: I've never seen a book done from inside the defense in a major
1: criminal trial. Joe wanted the kind of insider access he'd had with the Nixon campaign when he wrote The Selling of the President.
3: I wouldn't want to just go to North Carolina and sit there. But I would want to actually live with you during the trial.
1: Jeff agreed, but he had terms of his own. His legal fees were mounting, and with his freedom on the line, he needed money. So they struck a deal, the writer and the accused murderer. Jeff would get a third of the proceeds from the book, and Joe would get his full access. Jeff signed a release. He'd have no creative control over the book, and he couldn't sue. But at the last minute, Jeff's lawyer added a sentence.
0: So long as the central integrity of my life story is maintained...
5: All Joe had to agree was that he would portray truthfully whatever he learned. That's what wound up being signed. That was the agreement.
1: What did you think?
5: I mean, the book sounded so fascinating that if this is the only way he he can get to do it, I don't know. You know, it's hard to say now because I know what happened.
1: Next week on Morally Indefensible. Jeffrey McDonald heads to North Carolina to stand trial for the murders of his family.
5: In Long Beach, California, Jeffrey McDonald is an emergency room doctor. Here in Raleigh, he is on trial for murder.
1: Morally Indefensible is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. This episode of Morally Indefensible was produced by Ryan Swiker, with help from Jesse Rudoy, Julia Patero, Zach Hirsch, Kevin Shepard, and Danielle
2: Elliott.
1: Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Danielle Elliott. Alessandro Santoro is our associate producer. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Kenny Cusiak did the music and mix. Sound design by Kenny Kusiak, Ryan Swikert, and Kevin Shepard. Our title track is Promises by The Monophonics. Additional music by John Kusiak and Marmoset. Voice reenactments by Logan Stearns, Jesse Rudoy, Mary Lindsay, and Walker Vreeland. Legal review by Linda Steinman and Jack Browning of Davis Wright Tremaine. Special thanks to Sean Twigg, May Ryan, Luke Malone, Brian Murphy, Joe Langford, Peter Schmull, Diana DeCilio, Bob Stevenson, Christina Misavich, Bob Keeler, and Errol Morris. If you like this episode of Morally Indefensible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And thanks for
7: listening.